and follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray. Father, we're desirous of you this morning to speak to us through your word. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears, open our eyes to see Jesus Christ more clearly this morning from this text. We commit it to you, Father. We pray that you would be at work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I've been reminiscing on my hometown this past week. I grew up in the town of Essex, Vermont. And when I think of my hometown, I think of sites and places I'm familiar with, like the swimming hole by the old red mill, or the sledding hill in the woods by my house, or the baseball field that I spent so much time playing on as a kid. I think of Paul Maz's farm where I got my first job. Think of the grocery store that I worked at through high school. Of course, I think of people as well, people I know, people who know me, I can picture where their houses are. I know what their homes look like on the outside and the inside. I know what cars they drive, what sports teams they root for. Of course, I think of my family, my parents, my four siblings, and many great memories that we had growing up together. The reason I've been thinking about that this week is because our text this morning takes place in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And unlike my hometown experience, which has been overwhelmingly positive, we're gonna see this morning that Christ was actually rejected by those in his hometown. And I'm wondering if any of you are rejecting Jesus this morning. See, at the end of the day, there's only two types of people, those who receive Jesus and those who reject Jesus. And our text this morning, I think, is designed to help us to decipher which category we fall into. You see, this incident at Nazareth highlights the characteristics, the signs, the key marks that distinguish somebody as being able to receive Christ. And likewise, our text helps us to understand the chief features of those who reject Jesus. So I invite you to tune in this morning as we walk through this passage together and consider where you're at with Jesus today. Well, our passage comes at a pivotal point in Luke's gospel. Up to this point, Luke has been preparing Theophilus, the person he's writing to, for God's son, Jesus, to come on the scene. And in the first two chapters of Luke, we see Jesus coming anticipated and brought to pass. That's, that's really the Christmas story. And then 
end of chapter 2 through the end of chapter 3, we're ramping up for Christ to launch his public ministry. We see that in Christ's devotion to his Father's will. Remember that story about the boy Jesus in the temple? We see that through John's ministry, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We see that through Jesus' genealogy and his temptation in the wilderness by the devil, as we talked about last week. Now in today's passage, Jesus is finally launching his public ministry. And so we pick up the story in verse 14 with Jesus entering or returning in the power of the Spirit to Galilee to begin his public ministry. Remember that the Spirit had led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, and now Jesus, having overcome that temptation, still empowered by the same Spirit, comes to Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel, kind of west, northwest of the Sea of Galilee. And the news about Jesus is spreading throughout all the region. Jesus is teaching in the synagogues. Basically, the synagogue was the center of Jewish worship at this time. In fact, if you had a community with at least 10 men, you had a synagogue in Israel in those days. So these things were just everywhere. And Jesus is being glorified by all. That, that is his message is being welcomed, at least on an outward level. And there's good evidence, which I'm not going to get into this morning, that the signs and wonders that Jesus performs in the later part of chapter 4 at Capernaum actually happened, chronologically speaking, up here in verses 14 and 15. So by the time Jesus gets to his hometown of Nazareth in verse 16, people are already aware of his reputation as a great teacher and healer. And it might seem reasonable to expect that Jesus is going to get a glad reception in Nazareth when he goes to teach in his home synagogue according to his custom. After all, this is his hometown. But let's hold that thought. So Jesus, he takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he stands and reads the promises of Isaiah 61 and 42. That's what he's quoting in verse 18 and 19. And he sits down, everyone's looking at him, and he proclaims, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, it's important for us to dissect what Jesus is saying based on this text from Isaiah to reveal himself to the Nazarenes. I think Jesus is making at least three claims here. First, he's proclaiming his identity. Now, remember that way back in the Old Testament, God had made a covenant with King David, and he told David that David would have a son who would sit on his throne forever and ever. Well, that promise was in jeopardy in Isaiah's day because Israel had forsaken the Lord their God. And they were facing God's judgment in the form of exile to Babylon. But amid prophesying judgment upon the unfaithful Israelites, Isaiah promises that God will still send a spirit-filled descendant of David to do his will. In fact, this is what Isaiah 11 says. It says, a shoot from the stump of De Jesse is coming. That's David's household. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And later in Isaiah, we learn more about this spirit-anointed new David. He's going to be Yahweh's chosen servant. 
Behold, this is Isaiah 42, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So when Jesus stands up to read from Isaiah and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And then he says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, I'm that guy that Isaiah was talking about. I'm the new David. I'm the spirit anointed servant of God. See, Jesus was telling the Nazarenes his true identity. Secondly, Jesus is proclaiming who his audience is. Now, from our contemporary perspective, when verse 18 talks about the poor, the captives, the oppressed, the blind, it can seem like it's referring to the societally down and out, as if Jesus is this generic advocate for the little guy who has a tough lot in life. But when Isaiah, and by extension when Jesus, uses these terms, He's actually describing the spiritual condition, not the literal physical condition of his hearers. So let's break this down a little bit. Jesus' anointed one we see first comes for the poor. That is those who are spiritually poor. Isaiah 57 says that Yahweh will dwell in the high and holy place and also, get this, with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. See, the poor are those who have a contrite and lowly spirit, who recognize their spiritual poverty before God and are sad about it. And Jesus, God's anointed one, comes for the captives and the oppressed. That is, for those who are in spiritual captivity to sin. You know, in Isaiah's day, Israel was facing captivity to Babylon, but this was just an outward symptom of their inward condition. Again and again and again, they had turned away from the Lord their God to sinful ways. They needed to be free, not just from their literal captivity to Babylon, but ultimately from the captivity of sin that bound their hearts. And likewise, God's anointed one, Jesus, comes for the blind. That is those who are spiritually blind, not able to see God's salvation. Isaiah 6 says this, go, this is God speaking, and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. See, in, in judgment, God had blinded the Israelites. They weren't able to comprehend his salvation with their spiritual eyes. They had become incapacitated from seeing and accepting God's salvation. Now, what about this language on the year of the Lord's favor. What's, what's that talking about? Well, you may be aware that every 50 years, Israel was supposed to celebrate the year of Jubilee. You can read about that in Leviticus 25. Without getting into all the details, basically, the year of Jubilee was a time of release and restoration. So if you were an Israelite and you got into a bunch of debt that you couldn't pay off, the law allowed you to be the indentured slave of a fellow Israelite to work off that debt. 
but the law didn't allow for perpetual slavery. On the year of Jubilee, all debts in Israel were canceled, and if you were an indentured slave, you were set free. Now, ultimately, this practice was an illustration of Israel's relationship with God. See, Israel was the debtor because of their ongoing sin. But the year of Jubilee anticipated the day when God would release Israel from that debt. So when Jesus comes and he, he, he came to usher in the year of the Lord's favor, when he says that, he's saying that he came for debtors. He came for people who owe God a sin debt that they could never pay. You know, when you, you really boil it down, this language of the poor, the captives, the oppressed, the blind, they all communicate the same thing in essence. They're communicating that Jesus came for humble sinners. For people who aren't impressed with their spiritual condition, who are painfully aware of their sin, for people who don't think that God owes them anything. And we haven't gotten there yet in Luke's gospel, but Christ himself will become the provision for such humble people. See, through his atoning death, Christ will exchange the poverty of the spiritually poor for the riches of his righteousness. Through his obedience to the Father, Christ defeated sin so that those who are captive and oppressed by sin's power can likewise be set free. Through the cross and resurrection, Jesus completed the work that reveals God's glory to blind people and makes salvation available to them. Through his sin-bearing death, Jesus ushered in the year of the Lord's favor by releasing people from the debt that they owed against God, paying it, all of it, for sinners. Jesus is proclaiming his identity as God's anointed servant. He's identifying his audience, the spiritually humble. But he's also, and we don't want to miss this, he's also proclaiming his mission. Do you notice that there's a prevalence of preaching in this passage. Let's look back at verse 18 and 19. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, Jesus could have said that he came to save the poor to ransom the captives, to open the eyes of the blind. That would all be true. But the emphasis here is on his message. See, this is really a, a, mis a mission statement for Jesus' ministry. Christ's ministry was about Christ's message. It's the message about Jesus, the gospel, that ultimately saves humble people. So receiving Jesus equals receiving his message. And not in just some generic sense, but receiving it as true for you personally. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But by the way, uh, this understanding that Jesus' ministry was about the proclamation of the gospel, it helps us to understand his miracles. 
we're going to see a lot of cool signs and wonders in Luke. Christ is going to heal a lot of poor people and demon-oppressed people and sick people and blind people. But it would be incorrect to conclude that Christ's ministry was about performing miracles. No, no, no. Jesus came to preach the gospel. That was his mission. And in fact, at the end of Luke 4, when Jesus, Jesus is in Capernaum, he had done all sorts of healing and stuff, and the people wanted him to stick around longer. He says in verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Signs and wonders were subservient to Jesus' message. They served as helpful illustrations and authentications of that message, but they were not the central purpose for which Jesus came. So when we see Jesus do something miraculous in Luke or elsewhere, we should ask ourselves, what does this tell me about Christ's message? How does this physical sign illustrate the spiritual reality that Jesus is teaching about? Well, let's continue reading our text to see how the Nazarenes respond to Christ's proclamation. Pick it up in verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens and were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Well, on one level, it seems that the Nazarenes accept Christ's message. They pay close attention to him. All their eyes are fixed on him as he's speaking. They recognize that he's speaking gracious words, verse 22 says. And it's quite possible that they're thinking that this proclamation is a precursor to miracles that Christ is going to perform like he had been doing at Capernaum. But on a deeper level, it's clear that the Nazarenes reject Jesus' message. You see, they understand perfectly well who Jesus was claiming to be. They knew their Old Testaments, and they knew that Jesus was telling them that he was the promised son of God, the son of David, God's servant, ultimately the Messiah. They got that. They weren't confused about that. But they did refuse to believe him. And when they say, is this not Joseph's son? They're not asking a question like they're confused, like, you know, I'm not sure I really recognize him. Maybe he has a new haircut, something like that. No, no, they, they know who's speaking to them. What they're really saying, is this not only Joseph's son? In other words, no, it, it couldn't be. I mean, this is just Jesus. 
He's not the Messiah. He's not David's greater son or the servant of Yahweh that Isaiah was talking about. See, their response is really a rejection of Jesus. And Christ's response to them punctuates that point. In verse 23 to 28, he rebukes his hometown. He says, no doubt you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, do the works you did in Capernaum. Christ is reacting to the Nazarene's desire for him to authenticate his claim to be God's anointed one with miracles. Physician, heal yourself, that's kind of an idiom which, which basically means prove it to me. The idea is that if someone is truly a physician or a healer, he ought to be able to perform that healing for himself and for those closest to him, you know, like perhaps those in his hometown. And the Nazarenes are already aware of reports of the signs that Christ did in Capernaum. So they feel that Jesus owes them, his hometown buddies, miraculous signs too. You see, the, the message that Jesus testified from the scriptures concerning himself well, that wasn't good enough for the Nazarenes. They have their own ideas about who Jesus should be and how he should respond to them. But Jesus won't take that kind of arrogance. And in verse 24 to 27, he says, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus is the ultimate prophet of God as God's spirit anointed messenger and like the prophets of old he is rejected by his own you know Israel had a, a bit of a bad track record with with prophets didn't they I mean Jeremiah he was thrown in a well Micaiah he was thrown in prison Isaiah was most likely sawn in two and actually Jesus says in Luke 30 Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. So the rejection that Jesus is receiving in his hometown is nothing new or unexpected for a prophet. The blessing of salvation, which ultimately comes through receiving the prophetic message about Jesus, is rejected by proud insiders. And Jesus gives two illustrations to illustrate the fact that the Nazarenes are rejecting God's prophet just like their ancestors did. The first example he gives is the story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. Now, Elijah, you may know, ministered at a low point in Israel's history. King Ahab, who was the king at the time, was perhaps the worst king Israel ever had. He brought Baal worship, that's a false god, to Samaria, the capital city. And he married uh, Jezebel, a Sidonian that had the prophets of Baal literally like eating at her table. Because of this idolatry, God sends judgment in the form of a drought. And Elijah, God's prophet, he's hiding in the wilderness. Those who fear God are hiding in a cave for fear of being executed by Ahab's administration. But during this time, Elijah is sent to an unexpected outsider. She's a Sidonian. That's where Jezebel was from. She's a widow dying of hunger. In fact, when Elijah meets her, she's gathering sticks to make a fire to bake her last loaf of bread from her last handful of flour. 
and her last jug of oil before she and her son die. And no one in Israel would have cared if this lady died. I mean, she was from Sidon. The Israelites and the Sidonians didn't get together to watch March Madness and eat chicken wings. She was an outsider, an enemy. But this unexpected outsider accepts Elijah's message. He asks her to feed him. Elijah says, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she believes him. And the jar of oil and the handful of flour did not run out day after day after day after day. And then Christ gives the example of Naaman and Elisha. Again, we're dealing with a bad guy here. Teenage boys and girls of Nazareth did not have Naaman celebrity posters plastered on their bedroom walls. Naaman was a mighty warrior of Syria, one of Israel's enemies. And he happened to have a leprous skin disease. And Elisha, God's prophet, reveals God's word to this unexpected outsider. He tells Naaman to go bathe in the Jordan River seven times to be healed. And remember, Naaman's offended by that. He's like, are not the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? But ultimately, this unexpected outsider accepts Elisha's message. He dips himself seven times in the Jordan River and his flesh is restored to health. See, Jesus is using these examples from Israel's past to rebuke his hometown. The Nazarenes were insiders, like the Israelites in Elijah and Elisha's day, and God had sent his greatest prophet, Jesus himself, to proclaim the message of salvation to them. But like their forefathers, the Nazarenes were proud, and they rejected Jesus thereby passing up the opportunity to receive God's salvation. And though they were outsiders, the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the leper are pictures of the humble people, the poor, the blind, the captive and oppressed, who receive Christ's message. Both of them were in desperate straits. Both humbly received the words of God's prophet. Both were rescued from their calamity as a result. So how did the Nazarenes respond to Jesus' rebuke? Do they repent and fall on their faces and beg for forgiveness for rejecting God's prophet? Not quite. Let's keep reading. Pick it up in verse 28. And when they heard these things, all in the temple, or all in the synagogue, rather, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of their town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The Nazarenes are offended that Jesus is not who they want him to be. He hasn't come to fulfill their desire to perform miracles and wonders. He hasn't come to be a good hometown boy, that make Nazareth proud. Jesus has come as a prophet to announce God's salvation, but not to people like the Nazarenes that aren't humble enough to receive him. 
True to Jesus' statement that a prophet is not acceptable in his hometown, the Nazarenes attempt to murder him. All in the synagogue are filled with rage. No pious exceptions. They form a mob and they attempt to throw him down the cliff upon which their town was built. I mean, can you imagine that? Jesus came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. Of course, this was all part of God's plan. For through the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people, God was ultimately going to open the door of salvation to the nations. Jesus would ultimately be handed over to death by the Jews, but not until he completed his ministry of proclaiming the gospel. And so as the lynch mob of angry Nazarenes attempts to murder him, Jesus passes through their midst, probably miraculously, and goes away. Nazarenes turn their back on their prophets, so the prophet turns his back on them. So why did God choose to preserve this story for us in Luke's gospel? How does he intend for us to make use of this passage today? Well, like I said at the outset, I, I think this passage is designed to help us to evaluate whether we're truly receiving Jesus or if we're more like the unbelieving Nazarenes. I think this passage ought to instill a sober hopefulness in us. First, this passage should sober us because it's quite possible to reject Jesus today. If the Nazarenes of 30 AD, who literally grew up with Jesus and knew where he lived and knew his family and saw his physical body and heard his literal voice as he proclaimed the truth in their synagogues, if it was possible for these people to reject Jesus, how much more so is it possible for us in 2021 in Louisville, Kentucky to reject Jesus? Familiarity with Jesus doesn't cut it. I mean, the Nazarenes, they were familiar with Jesus, weren't they? And I know many listening to this sermon are also familiar with Jesus. You know your Bibles. You know the major tenets of Jesus' ministry and his message. But familiarity with Jesus doesn't equal receiving Jesus. And proximity to Jesus doesn't cut it either. Obviously, we're not in physical proximity to Jesus anymore like the Nazarenes were. But the fact that you're here this morning is evidence that you too are in proximity to Jesus in a spiritual sense. Christ is wherever his message is. Jesus and his message are inseparable. So when we gather as a church to hear the word of God, Jesus is very much here spiritually. Is he not? But being in proximity to Jesus does not equal receiving Jesus. And don't mishear me. It's good to be familiar with Jesus. And it's good to be in proximity to Jesus. I'm merely pointing out that it's possible for these things to be true of you and for you still to reject Jesus, just like the Nazarenes did. The one and only way to receive Jesus is by being humble. And that means accepting Christ's message 
including what it says about you. I'm wondering if you're at all offended by the language that Jesus uses to talk about your spiritual condition in this text. Are you offended by the idea that you're spiritually poor? The Bible says that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. Now your best deed on, on your best day is like the rag I use when I change my oil filter under my car. It's worthless in God's sight. Are you offended by the idea that uh, apart from Christ, you're a captive to sin and oppressed by sin? But that's an offensive idea. Remember a couple of years ago, I uh, had an f- acquaintance named Anatoly from Ukraine. He wasn't a Christian, no Bible background at all, but he came to a Bible study with me for about a year and a half uh, up until he got offended by, by Romans 6. Romans 6 says that you're either a slave to sin or a slave of righteousness. And we're driving after this study. And Anatoly asked me, he says, Ben, what does this mean? Slave to sin, slave of righteousness. Kind of had that Eastern European accent. And I said, well, Anatoly, it means that you have to serve somebody. You either serve Jesus Christ because you're a follower of Christ and you do the things that please God, or you serve the devil and you do evil things because you're a slave of sin. Well, he didn't like that answer. I am a slave to nobody. No, Anatoly. See, you're you're not a Christian. That, That means you're a slave to sin. I am not a slave. That's an offensive idea. Are you offended by the notion that you're blind unless God opens your eyes? Are you offended that you owe God an incalculable debt that actually merits hell, that God would be just to just just cast you out for all eternity? And that's not just some theological concept that we have to hold to to be orthodox. That's actually the reality of what our sins deserve. Friends, if you're offended by any of that, it may reveal a Nazarene-like pride that rejects Jesus. See, you don't get to decide who Jesus is or reimagine him in a way that's more comfortable. And when Jesus says that he came for humble people like the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the leper, people who own their sin and respond to his message by faith, you can't tiptoe around your sin and get to Jesus. You have to own your neediness, own your spiritual poverty, and come to Jesus as a widow, as a leper, as the prostitute in Luke 7 who wet Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, as the tax collector in Luke 18 who wouldn't even look up to heaven but beat his breast, and he cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So examine yourself. Evaluate whether you're really receiving this Jesus this morning. And any unbeliever listening, I I call on you to repent of your pride, to humble yourself, to turn to Jesus for salvation today. This text should sober us. It's, It's really a rebuke. But it should also make us hopeful. 
For God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Did you hear what I just said? God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. See, when Jesus announced that he was the anointed one from God, that wasn't just wishful thinking. When Jesus said that he came to proclaim good news to the poor, the blind, the captive, the oppressed, he meant that. There really is good news for you today because Jesus really did come as God's prophet to usher in and accomplish the good news of the gospel that enables you, despite your sin, to be made right with God. Don't doubt it. Believe it. And some of you believers listening to me this morning don't have trouble seeing your sin. Uh, in fact, you see your sin everywhere. You don't tend to tiptoe around your sin. And instead, your tendency is to jump into the deep end of your sin and, and to stay there. Oh, why did I say that? I blew it again. I'm a lousy Christian. You hear Jesus say, poor, oppressed, captive, blind, and you're like, yep, that's how I feel. But you don't easily hear the part where it says that Jesus came to announce good news to people like you. I want to remind you this morning, dear Christian, troubled by sin, that Jesus dealt with your sin 100%. You were poor. Christ saved you. You were held captive and oppressed by sin. Christ saved you. And by the way, he's in the process of driving out that sin that remains. You were blind and Christ saved you. You owed an incalculable debt before God. Guess what? Christ paid that debt and he saved you. So, don't dive into the deep end of your sin and stay there. Yes, own your sin, but look also to Jesus. Be hopeful. Be hopeful this morning. You know, I love the words of that hymn, Come Ye Sinners, that we sang before this sermon. Come, you sinners, poor and needy, Weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus, ready, stands to save you. Full of pity, love and power. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. Don't do that. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined, by the fall, that's us. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Then I love that refrain. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this word because it's about Christ and 
him coming to save humble sinners. Lord, you didn't owe us that. But you chose to provide a way of salvation through Christ for all who humbly receive you. Father, I pray that you give each of us here grace not to be like the Nazarenes that thought they knew Christ, but rejected him because they weren't humble. Lord, would you help us to come to you as humble ones, people who know you don't owe us anything, and yet who gladly cling to Jesus. Oh, we thank you so much for the hope that we have in Christ today. And I pray that you would fill our hearts with gladness, with thanksgiving for what Jesus has done. Thank you for this time. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.